Everyone, it's good to see you, and thank you for braving the weather, and the trust that we might enjoy the Word of God together. Uh, would you like to turn, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17? Matthew, chapter 17. It's a very well-known portion of the Word of God. I'm unlikely to say anything new about it. And if I were to say anything new about it, you should be suspicious. Um, But of course, what you would do would be like the Bereans, that you would check it out for yourself later. So Matthew chapter 17, and we will read from verse number 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother... And bringeth him up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. And... When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said unto them, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And they came down from the mountain. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the reading of his word here today. Now, as I've said, this is a very well-known passage of the Word of God, and yet it is a very important passage, and we do well to look at it time and again, because it brings to us a wonderful and amazing picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is. And this passage brings to us some of the truth of that thought, That one day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And tonight, I hope that we will be able to, each of us, by faith, to see him as he is. Of course, the prelude to this passage is at the end of chapter 16, where the Lord Jesus Christ said to the people gathered around him at that time, He said, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And there were some who thought, because on the surface it looks like it, that he was suggesting that amongst the crowd that were there, there would would be some who would live long enough to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In reality, in actuality. 
But of course that was not what he intended them to understand. What he was saying were words of prophecy if you like. That amongst those standing there and in particular three of them unnamed would have a foretaste, would have a foresight of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that is what happened of course in chapter 17. When we come to this chapter it starts off with and after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. After six days. Now you will probably be well aware that another gospel says that it was after eight days that this particular event took place. And some might wonder how that, if you like, miscalculation has come about. After six days or was it after eight days? Now I'm happy to tell you, of course, as you would know, that there are no such problems like we have described in the Word of God. All we have to do is to dig a little bit deeper and then understand that there is no difference between six days and eight days. Sure, six days, six full days had elapsed between the event that preceded it, but there was also probably the first day and the last day to make eight. Now you might say, well, how come that six can become eight? Well, I came had an experience some years ago now when I arrived at uh, Glasgow Airport and I was renting a car for a couple of days. And I checked in for it and so on, got the documentation. And the young fellow behind the desk, who, although it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, seemed to be bright and breezy, and he said to me, he said, Mr. Hill, when do you intend to bring this car back again? I said, well, on whatever it was, Thursday evening. And uh, good, he says, because if you keep it another day, if you're an hour or two late behind the agreed time, he says, we will charge you extra. We will charge you another day. Because, he said, we count part of a day as a whole day. So if I brought it back a couple of hours later, he was going to charge me another day because it was their practice to count part of a day as a whole day. Now, I perhaps learned something from that. That either... All car rental people are Jews, or they're just crooks, some of the two. But uh, you see, what he was saying was something that is here in the Bible, because the Jews counted part of a day as a whole day. Which also explains a little bit about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the third day. And so it is that... On after six days, Jesus, that is the man, as the disciples knew him, the Galilean, the one of, with whom they would be spending some years, and they, he took them. He took them, we are told. How did he take them? What does the idea of taking mean? Well, you remember that Peter, when the Lord said to him on one occasion, 
he said that I must go up to Jerusalem and be killed. Well, said Peter, not on my watch that won't happen. He said, it shall not be unto the Lord. In other words, Peter was promising to stop the crucifixion, although he didn't see it that way. What he wanted to do was to stand between the Lord Jesus and his persecutors. And he said, I will, the scripture says, and Peter took him. Peter took him. I think that that means that Peter not only stood in the breach, but Peter, if you like, perhaps put his arms around the Lord and said, this shall not be unto thee, Lord. And of course, as that was the case, and Peter said that the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Your understanding is not correct. Your thinking is a man and not according to the divine will of God. So you have that phrase that Peter took him. Perhaps as I say, although we don't know for sure, Peter would have put his arms around him protectively and lovingly and said, no Lord, this is not going to happen. And so it is that here now in our chapter, we read that Jesus took Peter, James and John. Took them lovingly. Took them carefully. Took them sympathetically, if you like. Put his arms around them and led them up into the mountain. Peter had not yet learned that it was not possible to avoid the cross. And we shall see that further down in a few verses when Peter wanted to stay where he thought he was and that they would not have to go down again and the Lord Jesus to face death. But I'll say a little bit more about that then. So here is Peter, James, or here are Peter, James and John and the Lord puts his arms around them and brings them up into this high mountain apart. Peter, James and John were the inner three of the twelve. You remember there were twelve disciples. And yet at important points in his ministry, the Lord took with him to those experiences, Peter, James and John. You will remember that he took them, or the first occasion that it is recorded where he took them, was to the house of the little 12-year-old girl who had died. Everybody else was put out. There stayed with him Peter, James and John as he raised the little maid from the dead and handed her back to his parents. We're told in that passage just by way of interest, here's a bit of homework for you to do as to why I might suggest this. Have you ever wondered about the mother of the little girl. We only read about her once, that the Lord Jesus went into the house with the father and the mother. Now you might ask, if you had a 12-year-old child dying, would it seem to you to be a good idea that the mother should leave the house? Why not have a look at this thought? Is there a possibility that the mother of the little maid, the husband or the wife of Jairus, 
that the mother of the child and the wife of that father was none other than the woman with the issue of blood. Remember how that story of the little maid is inserted right into the other story. Now I have various reasons for saying that but you think about it and look it up and see what you can find and, uh, but I think it's um, well it's a possibility and uh, worth thinking about. So uh, he took Peter, James and John and he took them up into this high mountain apart. Of course there were other occasions when he took the three only and left others behind like the garden of Gethsemane. He said to the twelve if you like or to the eleven as they were then you sit here. It's almost as if there's nothing here for you. You just sit here. And he took Peter, James and John farther in. Then he told them to abide where they had arrived at and he himself went a little further. Now I suppose sometimes a practical lesson is that when we come along to a service perhaps on the Lord's Day morning for the breaking of bread that's what some of us do. We sit here. And yet it is possible to go farther. To go to within a stone's cast. To go and see. Because the Lord Jesus said to the three, watch, he said, and pray. And yet some of us, perhaps unexercised about what we are going to do in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And unexercised about participation we come along which is good but we just sit here and so it is that as they these three were with him then and on one or two other occasions as well he bringeth them up now the idea behind bringeth them up of course is that he leads them up in other words he didn't just say it's a jolly good idea to climb this mountain he led them up into it and I think that he led them up in the evening. And I suspect that the Mount of Transfiguration scene happened at night. Why would I say that? Because the disciples were heavy with sleep. You might say, well, that was something they were guilty of on other occasions too. And uh, sometimes, you know, we ourselves during the day are heavy with sleep and uh, I shall be keeping an eye in case any of you are heavy with sleep tonight but um, more tellingly one of the other gospels tells us that they came down from the mountain the next day so they were up there overnight and of course so it's a glorious scene as we shall be seeing of the Lord Jesus here is a scene that would look more dramatic more stunning, more beautiful by night than it would by day. If you see, for example, a bright cloud in a, on a bright day, you might have some difficulty in spotting the cloud. The sun is so strong, perhaps in the top of Mount Hermon, I imagine, that to see a bright cloud in a bright day is not really all that dramatic. But... To see a bright shining cloud on a dark night is something else. You might remember, some of you who are older and have 
in order to be, if you like, engaged to your beloved, you took the adventure of taking her into a jeweler's shop, which is always an adventure. And uh, when you said that you were interested in a diamond, the jeweler would go and get a tray of diamonds, and he would take one out, and he wouldn't just hold it in the palm of his hand and say, now isn't that lovely? What he would do is he would take from below the counter a black cloth, and he would set the diamond in the middle of it. Because a diamond on a black background looks even more beautiful than it does in ordinary daylight, or as it would do on a sunny afternoon. So I imagine, rightly or wrongly, that the transfiguration scene was something that happened at night. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, he led them up, he showed them the way, all the way my Saviour leads me, we sung, and he showed them the way, and he put his arms around them, and led them up into the mountain, to the particular place that he wanted them to be. We are told it was a high mountain. Some say it's Mount Tabor, and... Uh, Arab taxi drivers make quite a lot of money by ferrying in fast cars visitors up Mount Tabor but I think they're in the wrong place. It was more likely to be Mount Hermon. Tabor is not really a high mountain but Hermon of course is the high mountain of the area and is much nearer geographically to, what the, th to, to the things that were happening in the previous chapter. So probably about Hermon. He took them up there apart. I imagine if you went up into Mount Hermon, you would be apart. Away from everybody. Away from everything. In privacy. In some secrecy. And so he led them up in the dusk into this high mountain. And there he was with them. Peter, James and John. He had something that he wanted them to see. Because they were going to face days of difficulty. Days of real trial. Of things that they had never seen before and they would, had wished already would never happen. They were going to have to endure that. And now he was going to build into them in advance. Things that would help them to stand when the evil day came and having done all to stand you know part of the ministry of those of us who try to teach the word of God is not just to rage about things that have happened and shouldn't have happened amongst God's people but through the ministry to build into them before the events things that will help them to face the problems when they arise but more about that in a moment or two and we are told as they were there he was transfigured before them that little phrase before them means to me the idea of in front of their very eyes 
in front of them, in front of their very eyes. They could have touched him. Of course, a little bit previously, they had been sleeping. But they're not sleeping now. This is for real. The touch always means reality. And again, now he takes them up into this high mountain and is transfigured before them, right in front of their very eyes. There could be no doubt. There could be no mistake. So as they are there, something very strange happened. The appearance of the Lord Jesus changed dramatically, completely. These verses here talk about his countenance and his clothes and, as, and his other companions that showed up. And he stood there and his face was shining like the sun. His clothing was dramatic now. And of course as they saw that, they no doubt were filled with wonder, if not fear. He was transfigured. Now the idea behind being transfigured is that there is in the person or thing a complete change. A complete change. It's a metamorphosis. For example, a metamorphosis occurs when a little thing known as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And yet, although it is so different, it was a creepy crawly. Couldn't get off the ground with the branches of the tree. And now you look at it. Look at the colours. Though fragile, it can fly beautifully. It can soar, as it were, into the heavens. And yet, although at this point it was a caterpillar, and although at this point it's a butterfly, it's nevertheless the same little creature. It's the same, only different. And so, whatever was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the same. He was Jesus. But he was different. A metamorphosis on a less colourful example happens, for example, when a tadpole turns into a frog. Same thing. A tadpole, a frog. And with metamorphosis, the same little creature is quite different to what it was before. The Lord Jesus Christ now appeared different. So how did that happen? The scripture here tells us and says, and he was transfigured before them. I take it that this is suggesting that the power that transformed him was from God himself. You might say, argue with me and say, well, Jesus is God. That's true. But this is in the passive voice, I understand. 
It doesn't mean that he sort of how somehow or other did it himself, but it was done to him or for him. And furthermore, as he stood there and was transfigured before them, this was something that happened, I believe, from the inside. Something that was already there, shone through his body and his earthly clothing. Of course, do you remember how John describes that? He says, and we beheld his glory. And that was the occasion when they beheld it. So as they stood there, they watched him and they saw him changing. They, of course, little knowing that it was a change that was coming from the inside. It included his face that soon would be marred more than any man's. It included his clothes that would be split up and given away when he was stripped in connection with Calvary. And so, as they stood and looked, they saw him as they had never seen him before. You know, it's a lovely thing when you see <clears throat> some things about Jesus that you never saw before. Sometimes I sit in a meeting and listen to somebody <clears throat> speaking from the Word of God, and I think, I never saw that before. How did they see it and I didn't? Probably because their eyes were open and mine weren't. But they saw him as they had never seen him before. And what I'm suggesting to you is that sometimes we see this. And when you see something new like that. It's got a power. If you read in the word of God sometimes. Even if you're reading yourself. And you see something. It sort of gives me a thrill. A little shiver goes down my spine. I see one thing that I never saw before. When they saw Jesus. Everything. None of it. Had they ever seen before. Because he went about. As an ordinary. Although extraordinary man. Clothed. In the, day, in the clothing of the day. <coughs> that others wore. And yet now here. They have this tremendous scene and this tremendous sight. His face shone as the sun in its strength. The sun, of course, is the ultimate ruling glory. And uh, that's what he is too. He is the ultimate ruling glory himself. And furthermore, his clothing was this is, is described by three different writers in different ways. <coughs> Some say, well, at least one says, it was white as the light. Another says his clothing was exceeding white, glistering, shining. Another says it was white as snow. Another says it was so white as no fuller on earth could white them. You know, <coughs> the job of a fuller <coughs> was to take material that was stained that was dirty that didn't look good at all and through the process if you like of fooling he ensured that what he did to this clothing would bring it up clean and new and white no 
experienced fuller man could have made these clothes any whiter because they were pure in whiteness and of course they were appropriate for the Lord Jesus <coughs> because in him <coughs> excuse me in him there is no sin no impurity no stains nothing he deserved clothes like this because clothes in the Bible always speak of character and here now as they looked at this for the first time they beheld his glory then when you come to verse 3 and behold there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him behold look further down at verse number uh, number 5 while he yet spake that's while Peter yet spake behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold now this word behold repeated here in these verses is used to draw our attention to something that otherwise we might miss in other words the writer here is saying as things unfolded on the mountain top now look at this don't miss this this is important I like to think that the word behold is encapsulated in this little tale that I shall tell you one of my grandchildren many years ago now 20 years ago or something was leaving our house with his parents he was sat strapped in the back of the car as should be his parents were in the front and my wife before they left gave this little lad of three maybe I don't know uh, four maybe three or four a carton of yogurt now why she would want to do that I don't know but there was a problem as well that somehow or other the top had been taken off the carton of yogurt and placed back on this little lad sat in the back seat for reasons best known to him he shook the yogurt out it came all over him even into the hair of his mother in the seat in front of him everybody that saw the scene was appalled his parents turned round and shouted at him his grandmother glared into the window at him or through the window at him and the little lad sat there and he said did you see that well how could you miss it but he was just in case we missed it just in case we missed it he was pointing it out wasn't he the word behold every time you see the word behold you say to yourself do you see that don't miss that and so behold there appeared behold there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah there appeared well where had they come from somehow or other they suddenly appeared there and who were they Moses and Elijah now you don't want to miss that that's worth looking at Moses and Elijah and how did the writer know it was Moses and Elijah he had never seen them but you might say well Matthew wasn't there anyway but of course one of the ones there must have told him they'd never seen it before yet they knew who, he, who they were that'll be true of heaven as well you know that um, it's difficult as you get older when you 
go around places and you see people and you know them but you can't remember their names. You might notice if you watch carefully or listen carefully that old preachers have perfected the um, skill of talking to somebody without ever mentioning their name. Because sometimes when you try to mention the name you get it all wrong and it's hugely embarrassing. But there were Moses and Elijah. What were they doing there? What on earth were they doing there? Well they'd come from heaven. Speaking loosely. And uh, why we might have asked the question of course. In connection with Peter, James and John. Why did he just take three men up? What about the others? Surely they deserved it too. Well he took three, three up. For two reasons. One, he told them at the end of where we read. That they should keep this secret. Don't tell anybody. Until the son of man be raised from the dead. So he took three. As a low number. To keep it secret. And then. The other thing that they had to do in due course. Was when he was in from the dead. They had to tell it. And you remember the. Old Testament scripture says that. In the mouths of two or three. Witnesses. Every word should be established. So that's why there were three of them. Because. It's easier for a small number to keep a secret. He could trust these three to keep a secret. And so he brought them. That also afterward they might be um, witnesses. Um, of course when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They would witness that they had already seen the glory. And what a help for them because these men. Particularly James is going to die fairly soon. And it might be as the guillotine came down, James would have said, what about this? This is a whole waste of time for me. I've wasted my life. But James had seen the glory. Not just by faith, but in reality. What an encouragement. That was building in for the future, wasn't it? And taking him up this mountain apart. Of course, you could look at the two or three witnesses another way. Three from earth, two from heaven. And so it was Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are men who lived many, many years apart. But if you try to look up all the things that Moses had done, Elijah does too. It's worth trying to bring that through. I mean, there's, there are just so many of them. All the things, for example, just in passing, there were 40 days. I'll read you something here that says about Moses and Elijah. You represent the law and the prophets. They have something in common. All of them. That is Moses, Elijah and Jesus. They had something in common. In that they had spent time in a wilderness of 40 days and 40 nights. Moses on the mountain. Elijah running away from Jezebel went into the wilderness and of course Jesus after his baptism spent 40, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness Moses was on the mountain to get commandments from God Elijah ran into the wilderness because he was terrified of Ahab and Jezebel and Jesus was driven by the spirit into the wilderness Moses failed after his, for, after his 40 days 
because uh, he threw down the tables of stone and broke them. Elijah failed even before his 40 days. And Jesus, though, assailed from um, during the 40 days by the Satan, Jesus endured his 40 days. Moses was angry against Israel. Elijah despaired of Israel. And Jesus overcame for Israel. So says Edersheim in his life and time of Jesus the Messiah. But you see, there are many things we don't have time to go into now. Take a whole, a, a few sessions to bring together all the things that Moses did that Elijah did as well. And some of them Jesus did too. So, as they were there, we read now, they were talking with him. You might wonder what they were talking about. Well, one of the things they were talking about, indeed the thing they were talking about, says Luke, was they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. It's wonderful to put it that way, isn't it? His decease, his death, which he suffered, no, which he accomplished at Jerusalem. He was in charge and control, no man taketh my life from me which he accomplished at Jerusalem. Of course, his decease would cover various things like um, his burial, his going out, you see, his exodus, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He accomplished these things at Jerusalem. And the marvellous thing here is, this had not yet happened. And yet they're talking about it. They're talking about it. Moses and Elias were not talking about their own accomplishments, which were many. But they were talking about his accomplish, his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. His going out was as wonderful as his coming in. And so they talked about that before it happened. You know, sometimes in our lives, we, something happens to us and we think, well, what's going on here? I just want to say this by way of encouragement. If you have had a bad time recently, if you have had trials and difficulties, physical, mental, any otherwise, then remember this. That whatever happens, however you react to it, supposing something comes into my life and I sort of am so upset about it that I run, if you like. Just remember this. The whole thing is being talked about in heaven already. Heaven knows to, if necessary, put in place circumstances and people and things that will catch me before I run too far and bring me back home again. Whatever's happening to you or me in the days that lie ahead, it's already been talked through in heaven and all will be well. Furthermore, uh, of course we know that Moses and Elijah represent different things, not only law and prophets, but also, of course, Moses uh, died and was buried. Elijah didn't die and wasn't buried, but was translated. A lovely picture of when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. There were some who will have already gone through the article of death and there will be others who will be translated without going through the article of death. Uh, then answered Peter, 
Now, Peter was one of those clever brethren that could answer a question before it was asked. Because nobody asked any questions, but Peter answered. And Peter's answer was this. He said, Lord, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, of course, Peter has been criticized for that, perhaps quite rightly, and yet a bit cruelly. Because when you look carefully at it, folks say, well, it was putting the Lord Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Well, they had some things that they did share. They'd all come from heaven at one stage or another. But never mind, look at what Peter look at the exact words that Peter said. Jesus he said unto Jesus, Lord. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? Sovereign Lord, he says. Lord. What does he say after that? He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And so it was. More than that, he said, if thou wilt. Well, that's a great word too, isn't it? I'd give Peter at this stage 10 out of 10, 10 points. He's done wonderfully well. And then he says, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When he said, let us make here three tabernacles, he then, perhaps realizing his gaffe, says, one for you, Lord. First, you, you. One for you. One for Moses. One for Elijah. What about the other three fellows that were there? None for them. They can do without. What was Peter aiming at? Peter was trying to take the situation he was in. In heaven he was, as it were, by faith here and partly by sight. He was in a heavenly atmosphere with the Lord Jesus, exalted. With prophets from the Old Testaments that he had read about. Wonderful. Peter didn't want to leave that. He wanted to keep that. He wanted to be, continue to be part of that. He wanted to hold on to it. And forgetting about the others at the foot of the mountain. This was a way that Peter could see. To get to the glory without the cross. They were there already. Why shouldn't they stay? I have a little thing, an embroidered thing that hangs up in my house. When you look at it, it looks like it says the word no is, occurs twice. And uh, there's also then a crown on it, clearly. And um, a cross as well. I bought it from an antique shop in Bath. I liked the look of it. I said to the man, I said, what's that mean? And he said, I think it means no church, no state. Mm, wasn't sure if I wanted that or not. And then the next morning, I went straight back to him when he opened up and said, I'll have that. I said, that was a quick change of mind. I said, yes, it was, because I know what it means. I know what it says. What's it say, he said. Mind you, this made no sense to him either. But um, this is what it says. No cross, no crown. Peter had to learn that lesson. There can be no crown unless there is a cross. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Probably the Shehina cloud. 
It overshadowed them. A bright cloud on a dark night overshadows them, envelops them. And behold, look at this, don't miss this. Did you see that? And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Now Peter was still um, talking at this time. You know, sometimes when you're preaching or speaking, thinking too of Cornelius and the, uh, of Peter and the household of Cornelius, while he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell on them that believed. The meeting was over as far as the Holy Ghost was concerned, but Peter was still going. Um, that happens to preachers too, you know. Sometimes it's difficult to get started, and sometimes it's more difficult to end. Knowing when to end is very important. I don't think you have a clock to look at, so you can't. You have there. You can keep an eye on what, whether I do this or not. Peter was still talking. Now says the voice from heaven, "This is my beloved son. Hear him." He hadn't said anything so far. Peter had. The others had. In talking with Jesus, and so says God about His Son. This is my. Beloved and glorious Son, hear him. Don't mind Moses, don't mind Elijah, don't mind Peter, hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they were sore afraid, and they fell on their face. No wonder. And Jesus came. That's lovely, isn't it? I mean, he, he, he always does. When there's trouble for saints, Jesus comes. Sometimes, even if he has to walk in water to get there, he'll be there. He'll show up. He'll be with you and me in times of fear and difficulty. And Jesus came and touched them. Isn't that lovely? He came and touched them. I rejoice in my heart to think that when I sing the words of um, uh, a chorus or uh, whatever it is we sing, we sing, Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch him and to say that I love him. It's remarkable to me that at that time, the longing in my heart to reach out and touch him will be swamped by the longing in his heart to reach out and touch me after all these years and when they had lifted up their eyes they saw no man save Jesus only and one of the gospels adds a, a little bit about that it's, it says that they saw that there was there Jesus only with themselves so at one stage there had been Jesus and the three. Then they'd been joined by another two from heaven who had now gone back whence they had come. And now they're with Jesus only. With themselves. Lovely to know Jesus. Lovely to be able to see him by the eye of faith. Not shared by many. But you and I have had experiences that happened to us like this. We've seen Jesus. 
and he's been with us privately quietly in the high place on the high mountain and we have seen him as he is and yet one day we too shall be transformed our vile bodies shall be clothed anew and when we get to heaven he will take the opportunity of walking us through the golden streets as the hymn writer said what a day what a day that will be shall we pray our father we come to the